The first scripture is from Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. It says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. I once met with a woman uh, who wanted to sell my brother-in-law a collection of coins. And so as I met with her and I was kind of appraising those coins, she was telling me uh, that, that she had inherited these from her father. And, and as a child, she remembered watching him sorting through these coins at home and, and picking out the good ones and putting them in protective cases. And, and so uh, she was a little bit reluctant to part with the collection because it had that meaning for her, but uh, she was about to go into grad school and she wanted to avoid taking on debt, and this was kind of the reason why her, her dad had collected the coins in the first place. So, so we went through them uh, little by little. He, he had done pretty well for her. She'd bring them out one at a time, and I'd appraise it, and she'd total it up, and uh, we never quite got to whatever number she had in her mind um, because we got to the very last item, and, and, and she, she really hesitated. She didn't want to bring it out. She didn't even want to let me see it. And, and so I said, you know, I want to be helpful. And I was like, well, I wonder what, what this is. So I, I was like, hey, why don't you just let me appraise it? Just let me look at it. And I'll, I'll tell you uh, what it's worth. And then you can make an informed decision. And there's, there's no pressure. So, so she brought this item out. And she set it on the desk between us. And immediately... I knew what it was. Immediately, I knew exactly what it was worth. And it was this little cardboard uh, container, and, and you open it up, and it has a picture of the United States on it. And there's 50 holes in it, and each one contained one of the state quarters. And she told me that when she was a little child, she had given this cardboard booklet to her father as a gift. And he had been so excited to receive it. And together, they hunted down all of these quarters. Together, they, they found each of them and they put them in there. And then he, he placed this in his safe in a place of, of importance. And anyone who knew anything about coins who came to their house, he would take it out and he would say to them, this is the, this is the crown jewel of my collection. This is the thing I value more than anything else. So I took a deep breath and I looked her in the eye and I said, your collection is worth exactly $12.50. And she raised an eyebrow that I started to tell her, I'm like, these coins, they're not rare. 
Like they're everywhere. There's millions and millions of them. They're not rare and, and they're not made out of anything precious. There's, there's no precious metals in them. They're just basic everyday metals. And, and I said, so, so there's no real intrinsic value here that I can offer you for this. And she closed the book up and, and put it away just as carefully as she had taken it out. And she told me, she goes, I'm so relieved. I'm so relieved. I was afraid that you were going to quote me a price that was so high that I would be forced to part with it. And uh, so she was happy. And she left feeling like it had the same value it had when she came in. Because for her, the value was not in the coins. The value was in her memories with her father. And so this morning as I was, I was thinking like, how, how do I talk about the sanctity of life? What, what does God want me to say? I thought of this story because I, I feel like God feels the same way about us. God has this great value that He places on human life. And it's not because we're rare. We're not rare. There's billions of us, right? And, and God can always make more. And, and, and there's nothing really of value in us either, are, is there? We, we were made from dust, and to dust we will return. There's the value that comes to human life. The value comes because of our relationship to God. We are made in His image. And those of us who believe in His Son, we're given the right to be called sons and daughters. There's a great and unique value to human life. Uh, C.S. Lewis said in The Weight of Glory, he said, uh, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. You see, God, God sees human life as great and unique in all of creation. In, in the account of the uh, creation account that we find in Genesis 1, we see that human beings were, were created separately and differently from all the rest of creation. We're, we're not only the, the crowning achievement of God's uh, creation, but all the rest of creation was created for the purpose of sustaining us. See, we're, we're both uh, flesh and spirit. We're both of the earth and of heaven. We're, we're allied to both worlds. And most profound of all is the fact that we're made in the likeness and image of God Himself. See, all the rest of creation was made according to its own kind, right? The plants were made according to their kind. The animals and the birds and the fish, they were all made according to their kind. But, but when we get to human beings, it doesn't say that we were made according to our kind. It says we were made after the likeness of God. We were made in the image of God. So, I know, I know we've been taught differently. I know we all think this, but it's not true. We are not members of the animal kingdom. We are separate and different from them. Not to say that God doesn't care about the rest of His creation, because He does. We see in Proverbs 21 that a righteous man takes care of his animals, and we know that part of the reason we have a Sabbath day is so that animals can rest from their labors. But the killing of animals was condoned for food and for clothing. 
and it was required as a part of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. But the killing of a person, the killing of a person is a huge thing in Scripture. God told Noah just after the flood, he said, if anything, a man or a beast kills a person, then it it has to be put to death. In Genesis 9, it tells us why. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his image. And the psalmist in Psalm 49 seems to understand the essential value of a human being when he writes, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Think about that. Think about that when you think about Jesus and and how he paid that price. He paid that ransom for each and every one of us when he died on the cross. It really puts the great and unique value of human life into perspective, doesn't it? So this morning, I get to talk to all of us about uh, the sanctity of human life. And, and, and so first, we're going to look at kind of God's plan for human life, and then we're going to think about some of the barriers that are out there to God's plan. So let's jump in uh, to God's plan for human life. I, I think that sometimes we have this idea that Adam and Eve were dropped down into the garden kind of like, uh, like as if it was a big terrarium, right? Like, like God was a nine-year-old kid who had this glass box where he's created this little world inside of it, and he throws his pets in there, and then he watches them for his own amusement. I, I don't think that that's how it is. I, I don't think that God created priceless human beings to, to constrain them for his own amusement, although I do think that some of us amuse God quite often, and some of us more than others. Um, the point I'm making is God did not intend for us to remain in the garden. Remember, the Creator God made us in His image. It was His plan that we would begin in the garden, but then that we would move out into the world and that we would create a culture, that we would create something amazing for His glory. And he tells us this immediately after he creates us. And, and theologians have taken this kind of declaration that God gives us of our noble purpose. Theologians have taken it and they've given it this important sounding title called the cultural mandate. And, and we can read it in Genesis 1, 28. It says, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, God is our designer, and as such, He's entitled to determine what our purpose is. God told Adam and Eve, no, where am I? I lost my place, sorry. God determines our purpose, right? So that means we're to be fruitful, we're to multiply, we're to fill the earth, we're to subdue the earth. 
and we're to exercise dominion over all the rest of creation. What, what God has said to us is, I'm making you the stewards of all that I have created. And this mandate is twofold. We're to be, uh, we are to procreate, which means that we're supposed to make children, bringing more of this priceless life into the world. And then we're to steward the rest of creation, which means we're supposed to create a culture within which human beings can flourish and glorify God. So our big idea this morning is that God has given us life so that we can give life to others. Now, I, I, I think we all kind of know what happened in the garden, but real briefly, I'll cover it. God told Adam and Eve, like, don't eat that forbidden fruit or you will surely die. And Satan came along and tricked them, and they did disobey God, and they ate that fruit, and it brought sin and death into the world. We're still made in God's image, but now that image has been marred by sin. Our value. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, he says in Romans 3, 12, all have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. See, because of our sin, our, our hearts are dead. They are lifeless. They are unable of their own power to turn towards the God that created them with such value and with such a noble purpose. And at first glance, it seems like Satan had really struck a major blow to God's plan. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's Ephesians 2. See, God was not surprised by what happened in the garden. God had a plan for us since before we were even created. God Himself came to earth. He took on flesh. That means He became a human being. He lived that perfect life that Adam and Eve and you and I could not live. And then He died on the cross punished for all of our sins. He paid that priceless ransom that we could never pay. And three days later, He rose from the dead. And you know what that did? It triumphed over death on our behalf. And it proved that He was fully man and that He was fully God. And if you believe this, if you believe this, then you have been made alive in Jesus Christ. And that's good news. Because Jesus' death, I mean, Jesus' victory over death is absolute. But right now, we live in that tension, right? Between the now and the not yet. 
You know, we know that now our, our hearts have been made alive, but we're not yet going to feel the full extent of that because we continue to live in a broken world. But Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, he gave, he gave us some clarifying uh, words, something that uh, we can do to kind of accomplish the cultural mandate until he returns. And theologians have a fancy name for this too. It's called the Great Commission. And we can read it in Matthew 28. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So you see, we can't really avoid our purpose, right? We've been designed to create culture, and human beings create culture willy-nilly, right and left. It, we do it without even thinking about it. But the problem is that the world is filled with image bearers who are hostile to the God who created them, to the God whose image they unknowingly reflect. Those whose hearts have not yet been made alive, all they can do is create a culture of death, even when they think they're doing the opposite. And within the church, we try to create a, a culture of life, don't we? But I think more and more often we're seeing that outside culture influencing ours rather than the other way around. Jesus told us that he'd been given all authority under heaven and earth, and so what that means is he's kind of been made the head steward, right? He's the head steward of that cultural mandate. And he's delegated to us a singular focus for how we will create a culture of life in this world. And that singular focus is called discipleship. The method by which we will build a culture of life is through making disciples. This is done by seeing people come to faith and then baptizing them and then teaching them what the Word of God says. Then and only then will they be able to help us build a culture of life. Now, I want you to note something. Jesus did not say go and make picket signs. And Jesus did not say go and run for office. And Jesus did not say go and make low-budget, poorly written and acted Christian films. <laughs> there, there's nothing wrong with being politically active and, and if you do it right, there's nothing wrong with using art to influence culture. But if this is where you're putting your hope for changing the world, in Donald Trump, in some Christian organization that always talks about politics, or in Kirk Cameron? Is that where you're putting your hope? You're really missing something. Now, again, participating in politics and 
being active in the arts, those are good things. And I'm not suggesting you're wasting your time. And I have personally seen God do amazing and transformational things through those kinds of efforts. But our head steward has given us marching orders in the cultural mandate. Go and make disciples. So, make disciples, right? So I come from a Mormon family. My parents have so many brothers and sisters that I cannot keep them straight, right, on Facebook, right? If, if you send me a friend request and you live in Utah and there's a picture of you with 10 or 11 blonde-haired children, I just assume we're cousins. And I say, yes, we can be friends. Mormons take the cultural mandate pretty seriously, don't they? It's a shame they don't believe in the same Jesus that we believe in, but they are the fastest growing faith group in the United States, simply because they do what Jesus suggests. I do think that one of the things Jesus had in mind when he gave the Great Commission was child rearing. I really do. One of the primary ways that we make disciples in the world is to have children and to teach them about God and to teach them to believe in God. And, and so many of you in this room have sat down with me and told me your story of how you came to faith and you told me there was never a time I didn't believe in God. My parents were so faithful to teach me the ways of God and that has stayed with me all of my life. At New City Church, at New City Kids down the hall, our vision is to come alongside a child's primary discipleship leader. And that's not their Sunday school teacher. It's their parent or their grandparent or their guardian or whoever is building into their life. That's who we want to come around. And I think that the Jews who heard Jesus in, the, in those days, they were very familiar with this method of child rearing, of raising people to fear God from a young age. But Jesus also modeled uh, a, a way of making disciples uh, in his time, his short ministry here on earth, what to do with those who come to faith later in life. And for, for every story I've heard of a child coming to faith, I've heard a story of someone who, who had a coworker tell them about Jesus or a campus minister or a friend who came alongside of them and said, here's the good news and, and, and watch them come into faith and help them understand what that means. Christians, those of us who are mature in our faith, we need to be discipling others. That's the mission. We need to be inviting people into our lives and telling them about Jesus and what He has done. And then when we see them start to believe, when we see them come to faith, then we need to teach them more about what the Word says and what it means to follow Him. To observe all that Jesus has commanded in Scripture. See, God has a plan for this great and unique human life that He's created. He wants to see a culture in which we flourish. But in that culture war against the culture of darkness that's all around us, we need to remember that it's only when someone comes to faith and becomes indwelt with the Holy Spirit that they'll be able to feel conviction of their sin and repent and develop a desire 
to help us build a culture of life that gives glory to God. The barriers to God's plan. God, God has given us life so that we can give life to others. But what are, what are those things that kind of get in the way of that? I want to take a look at three distortions of the great and unique value of human life. That as we, um, as we look at the next slide, and as I begin to talk about it, I know that some of us are going to feel conviction but I, I'm afraid that some of us are going to feel condemnation. Guys, I apologize for that. I, I tried to think of a way to talk about this subject without addressing some of these issues, but I just it, it wouldn't have been good. But let me say this. If you're guilty of these sins, of some of these sins, or one of these sins like I am, if you believe in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Romans 8 tells us there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. You have not committed the unpardonable sin. Your sin is covered by the immeasurable grace of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. And so, if, if as we discuss this, you hear a voice of condemnation inside, that voice is not from Jesus. So don't listen to it, okay? All right, let's look at these three distortions. The first one is the destruction of human life. As we saw in Genesis 9... Because we're made in God's image, the ending of a human life is a, is a really serious matter. And, and to create a culture of life, we have to do what we can to protect those who are most vulnerable, right? Yet, yet we've passed a lot of laws against killing, and that doesn't seem to have been enough. And there's been a lot of protests, and that doesn't seem to have been enough. You know, Jesus spoke about murder in Matthew 5, in the series we just went through, the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about this, and, and, and Jesus equated people who are angry with people who have committed murder. Because, see, the, the underlying condition of the heart, at the heart level, they're the same sin. And he went on to suggest that we need to be very, actually he didn't suggest that he commanded it, we need to be very proactive in resolving personal conflict with one another. Lack of true fellowship, lack of peacemaking, that's what leads to murderous anger. So how can, how can I not think about school shootings, right? Where, where we've had this tragedy happen, this murder has happened, and now we have... Uh, all we talk about is guns. Some people are saying that guns are the problem, and some people are saying that guns are the solution. We should arm the teachers. We should take away all guns. I don't think that guns are the problem. What, what I don't hear people asking is, what is that unresolved, underlying conflict 
between people in the culture of that school. What is that? What, what led someone to go on a murderous rampage? Instead, we politicize it. And I observe something similar when it comes to this issue of abortion. Many Christians call themselves pro-life, but it seems that more and more I see that term just being politicized. Now, now I hate the idea of the unborn being killed, but can I really call myself pro-life if all I do is vote a certain way? There are many, many, many reasons why women choose to have abortions. But I have to ask myself, am I, am I supporting people who would adopt? Am I helping to meet the physical, spiritual, mental, emotional needs of unwed pregnant women? Am I holding men accountable for the pressure that they put on women or asking them to step up and take responsibility for their own choices? I'm, I'm not going to walk you through why we believe that abortion is wrong. It, it's in Scripture, and Sanctity of Life Sunday was recent. You can, you can Google it, and I'm sure there's a hundred sermons that will walk you through it. If, if you really feel it's necessary, just come see me, and I'll, I'll be happy to talk to you about it. And, and I don't want to quote you a whole bunch of statistics that tell you how enormously, incredibly, mind-bogglingly awful it is. Because I think we all know that. It's enough for me to say that I think abortion is wrong. It's contrary to God's law. It's an abhorrent practice that should not exist in a culture of life that brings glory to God. But I asked God, like, what do you want me to say to these people? And I think what He said is, tell them that Jesus Christ was not a protester, nor a finger pointer. In fact, most of the time when he was confrontational, it was when he was dealing with finger pointers. Remember, remember that time when the men, they, they, they caught two people having adultery and for some reason they only grabbed the woman and they, and they dragged her naked through the streets and they brought her in front of Jesus and they said, hey, we're supposed to stone her to death, right? And Jesus knelt on the ground and what did he do? Did he pick up a stone? Because I bet you that she thought he was going to. I bet you that in that moment she thought her life was going to end because of her sin. But instead, Jesus began to write in the dirt, and we don't know what he wrote. We don't know what he said. We can guess, but we don't know. Whatever it was, it was really profound because one by one, each and every man that had been there just turned and walked away. And when they were gone, John 8 tells us, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on sin no more. In today's context, 
I don't think we would find Jesus in the group of protesters outside of the abortion clinic. I think we would find him at the home of a woman who had just had an abortion. He would be comforting her, wiping away her tears, and he'd be loving her well. He wouldn't be ignoring her sin, but he would not be condemning her either. I think if Jesus had come in our day, we would be asking questions like, why does he hang out with homosexuals? Why does he hang out with abortion providers? Why does he hang out with women who have made this choice? Because see, we, we want Jesus to be allied to our political cause. And Jesus would be more interested in seeing these people set free from their sin through a personal relationship with himself. The term pro-life is a misnomer. If all it means is that I'm anti-abortion politically. Now, I do believe that those in the church are, are, uh, should be a part of politics. I do believe that we should participate in our representative uh, system of government. I believe that we should proclaim and demonstrate the gospel in the town square. I think we have a voice, and I think that we're influential, and we need to be a part of that. I think we need to pray for our leaders and our civil servants, even the ones we don't like, even the ones we didn't elect, even the ones who oppose our own agendas. Romans 13 tells us that the civil authorities, that we're, we're to give them honor and respect and taxes. Why? Because God determines who is placed in authority over us, and they're entitled to that. But if we want to see a culture of life develop in this country, we need to take the mandate and the mission more seriously. We need to set about making disciples who know and love Jesus instead of making political activists. And frankly, we need to be more, we need to be about more than just one issue. Let me read you something from Matt Chandler. If we believe that all human beings are created by God in His image, then what it means to be pro-life is way bigger than just the unborn. The unborn are the most vulnerable. I would argue that passionately. They are the most vulnerable, but what it means to be pro-life is to take a position of compassion and kindness towards the sick, the poor, the homeless, the aged, the mentally challenged, the inmate, and the refugee. Being pro-life is being pro-humankind, not just caring for the unborn. And that takes me to the next item, which is that God's plan for human life is distorted when we devalue it. See, when we value something, we give it the, the honor that it deserves, and we protect it. And so if all human life is made in God's image and is of great and unique value, then, then what does it mean when we discriminate against someone because of their race or the color of their skin or their socioeconomic status or because they're mentally or physically disabled or because they're 
old or because they're young or because they're a woman or because they're a man or because they're gay. All people are made in God's image. Not just the people who think like us and look like us and live near us. We need to stand up for these people when they're oppressed. And we need to treat them with the dignity and respect that is due all image image bearers of God. Another way we devalue human life is when we elevate the value of animals and the environment. When When we say things like, hey, men are nothing more than animals, that, or people are nothing more than animals, when we do that, we say, like, that's kind of an insult to the image of God a little bit, isn't it? Similarly, when we say animals ought to have the same rights that we have, or the environment ought to become more important than what is necessary for uh, human beings, we're diminishing the value of humans. Now, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't protect the animals or take care of the environment, because that's exactly what the cultural mandate tells us to do. But we need to be careful not to take those good efforts and elevate them to the wrong place. What about when we just ignore the needs of others, the homeless, that guy with the cardboard sign, the poor, the lonely, the sick? When, when we don't meet their needs, we're saying, you're not worth my time. You're not worth my attention. You're not worth my thoughts. You're not worth my money. These are image bearers of God. As a church, we need to be all about mercy and justice, and that means we stand up for all who are made in God's image, and we seek to meet the needs of all who are vulnerable. We need to be seeing and meeting the needs of the widows and the fatherless, and the refugees, serving when opportunities arrive is a great way to demonstrate that you value human life. Giving generously to a church that tries to accomplish these things is a great way to show that you value human life. Praying for these people, supporting these people in ways that you can, shows them that we value them. The last distortion I want to talk about is the deferment of human life. And, and I just want to pause for a minute and go back to the cultural mandate. I, it, the cultural mandate was given at two key moments in human history. One right after creation, there were two people. And one right after uh, the flood. And there were, there were eight people. At that time, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, I think that Noah and Adam could have reasonably inferred like, hey, he wants us to get busy and start creating children. But I think in today's world, there's billions of us now, and, and we're all at different ages and stages of life, and we have different circumstances. And I think it's okay for us to say like, hey, there's not this intense, immediate 
pressure to create life. In fact, we see in Scripture, of course, that there are certain people who shouldn't be having children. Single people should not be having children. It should be happening out of marriages. So people who are called to be single or people who are just single because that's how it is or little kids or, you know, maybe even people who are just not physically able, uh, there's, no, there's no pressure on you to have children because of the mandate. The Apostle Paul, in fact, urged people like, hey, stay single as long as you can. It's a good thing because then you can serve the gospel better. And he wasn't contradicting the cultural mandate. You know why? Because people without children serve the cultural mandate in full in every way as people who have children. Have you ever seen us baptize a baby uh, here at New City? When, when we do that, Ryan, at the end, he will turn to the congregation and he will ask them to make a promise. He will say, will, will you promise to help these parents raise their child in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Why does he do that? Because we're all a part of it. He says it takes a village. I say it takes a culture of life to support these people. And, and so, you know, we don't go to their house necessarily with bottle brushes and, and, and do their dishes, but what we do is we bring them meals and we pray for their kids and we serve in Sunday school. And we, maybe we offer to babysit. Or maybe, maybe we build a school that their kids will someday learn in. Or maybe we build a hospital that they'll someday receive treatment there. Maybe we start a business that they'll someday employ them. Maybe we pass laws that protect them or we lead discipleship groups so they'll know how to disciple their children. This is all culture building and you don't have to have children to fully take part in it. That being said, there are people in this room who should be having children and are choosing not to. There are people in this room who should be adopting children and are choosing not to. There are people in this room who should be opening their homes to foster children and are choosing not to. How can we claim to be pro-life if we are actively choosing to disobey God's mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Now, what do you hear me saying? I don't want you to hear me saying that I think that birth control is wrong. What I'm saying is that God is sovereign over the womb and not us. And so if you are married, and physically able, you need to have worked this out with God. You can't just ignore it for whatever good reasons you may have. You, you need to have prayed about this. You and your spouse need to have read the cultural mandate together and prayed and asked God to show you, do you want me to bring a child into this home at this time? 
Commit to praying about it. And God will speak to you clearly. In John 14, 2, Jesus tells His disciples that uh, He's gone to prepare a place for us. And He says, hey, don't worry, I'll be back. And when I get back, we'll all be together again forever. And Revelation 21, uh, John gets to see a glimpse of this. And this is what he writes in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. And neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And He who was seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. See, Jesus Christ is the living God. He's also fully human. And so, you know what that means? Like the cultural mandate applies to Him too. He has to fulfill the cultural mandate, and He's doing so. Except, He's doing it perfectly. See, this broken world will pass away, and, and, and Jesus is making it new again. And like the garden, it'll be a place where we spend time with Him, those who believe in Him. You see, it starts in the garden, but it ends in a new city, this new Jerusalem. That's why we call ourselves New City Church. Did you know that? Because we want to proclaim that Jesus is making all things new. That perfect culture that we could have had if sin and death had never entered the garden, that, that perfect life of living side by side with God, it's going to happen. It will exist. It, it, and Imagine a world of image bearers who've subdued and filled the earth with the glory of God. We want to call as many people to that to believe and become a part of that as we can. God has given us life so that we can give life to others. So church, we have our mandate and we have our mission. Let's not become distracted by the politics of our day but let's stay focused on building a culture of life together, making disciples, seeing their hearts made alive again in Jesus Christ, and teaching them to follow the truth of His Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I, I confess that I'm the biggest sinner in this room, and, and Lord, I, I pray that You would forgive me for being apathetic when I should have been passionate. And I pray that you would forgive me for being passionate when I should have been compassionate. Lord, I know that 
Many people in this room have been touched by some of the issues that we discussed, and Lord, I, I pray that, that you would not allow anyone to leave this room feeling condemned of their sin, but Lord, I pray you would draw them to themselves and let them know they are loved and forgiven. Father, as a church, I pray that you would help us as we do our best to build a culture of life here in Lawrenceville, in Gwinnett County, in Atlanta, in Georgia, in the United States, and around the world. Lord, could it be, could it be soon that you come back, that we'll walk with you as was always intended, that there'd be no more sickness and death and pain, but Lord, while we're here in the in the in the in between, Lord, I, I pray that you would give us strength and commitment and focus on your great plan for this wonderful gift of life that you have given to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.